Chapter 1 of In the Field, 1914-1915 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by FNH In the Field, 1914-1915 by Marcel Dupont Chapter 1 To General Sheffield's A Tribute of Sincere Gratitude Preface in the following pages the reader will find no tactical studies, no military criticism, no vivid picture of a great battle. I have merely tried to make a written record of some of the hours I have lived through during the course of the war. A modest lieutenant of chasseurs, I cannot claim to form any opinion as to the operations which have been carried out for the last nine months on an immense front. I only speak of the things I have seen with my own eyes, in the little corner of the battlefield occupied by my regiment. It occurred to me that if I should come out of this deathly struggle safe and sound, it would be a pleasure to me some day to read over these notes of battle or bivouac. I thought, further, that my people would be interested in them, so I tried to set down my impressions in my intervals of leisure. Days of misery, days of joy, days of battle. What volumes one might write, if one were to follow our squadrons day by day in their march. I preferred to choose among many memories. I did not wish to compose memoirs, but only to evoke the most tragic or the most touching moments of my campaign. And, indeed, I have had only too many from which to choose. I shall rejoice if I have been able to revive some phases of the tragedy in which we were the actors for my brothers in arms. Further, I gladly offer these impressions to any non-combatants they may interest. They must not look for the talents of a great storyteller, nor the thrilling interest of a novel. All they will find is the simple tale of an eyewitness, the unschooled effort of a soldier more apt with the sword than with the pen. M.D. Chapter 1 How I Went to the Front The train was creeping along slowly in the soft night air. Seated on a truss of hay in the horse-box with my own two horses and that of my orderly Wattelot. I looked out through the gap left by the unclosed sliding door. How slowly we were going! How often we stopped! I got impatient as I thought the hours we were losing whilst the other fellows were fighting and reaping all of the glory. Station after station we passed. Bridges, level crossings, tunnels. Everywhere I saw soldiers guarding the line and with bayonets of the old chasse-pots glinting in the starlight. Now and again the train would suddenly pull up for some mysterious reason. The three horses, frightened at being brought into collision with each other, made the van echo with the thunder of their hooves, and they slipped, stamped, and recovered their balance. I got up to calm them with soothing words and caresses. By the light of the wretched lantern swinging and creaking above the door, I could see their three heads, with pricked ears and uneasy eyes. They were breathing hard, and could not understand why they had been brought away from their comfortable stable with its thick litter of clean straw. They were not thinking about the war, but they seemed to understand that their good times were over, that they would have to resign themselves to all sorts of discomforts, march unceasingly, pass nights in camps under the pouring rain, keep their heavy equipment on their backs for days together, and not always get food when they were hungry. Then 
the train would set off again with the noise of tightened couplings and creaking wagons. Whilst I was mechanically looking out at the darkness, dotted here and there with the coloured lights of the signals placed along the line, my straying thoughts would wander to the fields of battle and try to picture the scene on my arrival at the front. It was the 28th of August, nearly a month after the order had been given for mobilisation, and the armies had been fighting for some days already. What had happened? We could only glean part of the truth from the short official announcements. We knew there had been a hard fight at Chalaroy and at Dinot, and in the direction of Nancy, but the result had not been defined. I thought I could guess, however, that these battles had not been decisive, but that they had cost both sides dearly. I was tempted to rejoice, fool that I was, to think that the first great victories would not be won before I joined my regiment. I had not yet been able to console myself for the ill fortune that prevented me from starting with the squadrons of the first line, and yet I had to submit the, to regulations. The colonel was inflexible, and answered my entreaties by quoting the inexorable rule. In every cavalry regiment, the sixth lieutenant in order of seniority must stay at the depot to help the major and the captains of the fifth squadron. They must assemble, equip, and train the reserve squadrons of the regiment. I shall never forget what those days were to me. Days of overwhelming work, when in a tropical heat, I was busy from sunrise to sunset, entering the names of thousands of men, registering the horses, giving certificates, and providing food for the lot. It needed some skill to find billets for them all. The horses were lodged in stables, riding establishments and yards, the men in every corner and nook of this vast district. It was tiresome work, and would have been almost impossible but for the general goodwill and admirable discipline. But all the time I was thinking of the fellows away in Belgium, boldly reconnoitring the masses of Germans and coming into contact with the enemy. At last, at eleven o'clock on the 28th of August, the Colonel's telegram came, ordering me to go at once and replace my young friend, Second Lieutenant de C., seriously wounded whilst reconnoitring. At six o'clock in the evening I had packed my food, strapped on my kit, and got my horses into the train. I set off with a light heart, and my fellow officers of the reserve and of the territorials, who were all still at the depot, came to see me off. But how slowly the train travelled, and what a long way off our little garrison town in the west seemed to me when I thought of the firing line out towards the north. I made up my mind to try and imitate my faithful Wattelot, who had been snoring in peace for ever so long. I stretched myself on the golden straw and waited impatiently for the dawn, dozing and dreaming. At about eight o'clock in the morning, the train stopped at the concentration station of N. What a crowd, and yet what order and precision in this formidable traffic. All the commissariat trains for the army muster here before being sent off to different parts of the front. The numerous sidings were all covered with long rows of trucks. In every direction, engines getting up steam were panting and puffing. In the middle of this hurly-burly, men were on the move, some of them calm, jaded, and patient. These were the railway men, who went about in a business-like way, pushing railway vans, counting packages, carrying papers, checking lists, and giving information politely and willingly. The rest were soldiers, lost, bewildered, in the midst of this entanglement of lines, 
which seemed inextricable. They were asking each other questions, swearing, laughing, protesting, and then they got into a train and were promptly hauled out and sent to another. But with all this, there was no disorder, no lack of discipline. Everywhere the same admirable composure reigned that I had already noticed at the station of my little garrison town. With Wattelot's help, I tidied myself up for a visit to the military authorities of the station. After many difficulties, and after passing through the hands of a number of sentries and orderlies on duty, I came into the presence of a kindly captain to whom I stated my case. These are my marching orders. Captain, how am I to join the light cavalry? Do you know where it is just now? The captain raised his hands to heaven, and with a look of despair, How am I to know where any regiment is now? You can't expect it. All I can do for you is to couple your truck on with the commissariat train of your army corps. It will take you as far as the terminus, and there you must see what you can do. I went back to my horses. After various excursions hither and thither, which took up the whole morning, I at last managed to get my horse-box coupled to the train. Wattelot and I, together with the territorial section that served as guard, were the only passengers. The whole train was composed of vans stuffed with food supplies and mysterious cases, packed into some separate vans carefully sealed. Our departure was fixed for two o'clock, and meanwhile I had a chat with the territorial lieutenant who commanded our escort. I tried to find out from him what had happened at the front. He did not know any more than I did, and merely told me how sorry he was for his own ill luck. You know, our job is no joke. We start after luncheon, travel all the rest of the day and part of the night, sleep where we can, and the next day we go back again in the empty train. It takes still longer to get back, and the day after we begin all over again and the worthy man quietly folded his hands on the fair roundness of his figure. He looked a good sort of fellow. He did his job conscientiously, put his men into the third-class compartments assigned to them, saw that they had their cartridges, and gave them some fatherly counsel, and then he invited me into the second-class compartment reserved for him. But I declined, as I preferred to travel with my horses. The train jolted off. The heat was tropical. We had pushed our sliding door wide open, and, seated on our packages, we contemplated the smiling summer landscape as it passed slowly before us, and I came to the conclusion that we had found out the pleasantest of ways of travelling, to have a railway carriage to yourself, where you can stand up, walk about and lie down, to go at a pace that allows you to enjoy the scenery of the counties that you pass through, and to be able to linger and admire such and such a view such and such a country, mansion, or monument of olden days. That is a hundred times better than the shaking and rush of a train deluxe. I was delighted and touched by the sympathetic interest shown in us by the people. Everywhere old men, women, children waved their handkerchiefs and called out, Good luck! Good luck! The worthy territorials answered back as best as they could. One felt that all their hearts were possessed with one and the same thought, wish and hope, the hearts of the men who were going slowly up to the battle, and those of the people who watched them pass and sent their good wishes with them. At one station where we stopped, a group of girls dressed in white were waiting on the platform under the burning rays of the sun. With simplicity, grace, and charming smiles they distributed chocolate, bread, and fruit to all of the men. 
The good fellows were so touched that tears came to their eyes. One of them, an elderly man with a grey pointed beard, could not help saying, But we aren't going to fight, you know. We're only here to take care of the train. That doesn't matter. That doesn't matter. Take it all the same. You are soldiers like the others. Vive la France. And all the thirty territorials, in deep and solemn tones, repeated, Vive la France. What a change had come over these men who, people feared, were ripe for revolt, undisciplined and reckless. What kindness and grace in the women who stay at home and suffer. An old railway man said to me, It has been like that, sir, from the first day of the mobilization. These girls pass their days and nights at the station. It is really very good of them, for they won't make anything by it. The old man was right. They won't make anything by it. And yet I am sure that many soldiers who have passed that station on their way to the front will keep the same grateful remembrance that I still have. I shall never forget the group of girls in white on the sunny platform of that little station. I shall never forget the simple grace with which they prevailed upon the men to accept the good things they offered, and even forced upon them. I thanked them as best I could, but awkwardly enough, trying to interpret the thoughts of all those soldiers. And when the train had started again on its panting course, I felt sorry I had not been more eloquent in my speech, that I had already forgotten the name of the little station, and never thought of asking the names of our benefactresses. We were now getting near the fighting zone, and I already felt that there was a change in the state of the mind of the people. They still called out to us, Good luck! Good luck! But earlier in the day, this greeting had been given with smiles and merry gestures. Now it was uttered in a serious and solemn tone. At the station gates and the level crossings, the eyes of the women who looked at us were more sad and profound. They fixed themselves upon ours, and seemed to speak to us. Even when their lips did not move, their eyes still said, Good luck! Good luck! We saw motor-cars rushing along the roads, and could distinguish the armbands on the men's sleeves, and rifles in the cars, or lying in the hoods. And yet daily life was going on as usual. There were workers in the fields, tradespeople on the doorsteps of their shops, groups of peasants just outside the hamlets. But yet a peculiar state of mind was evident in each one of these people who were going on with their daily work. And all these accumulated cares, all these stirred imaginations, produced a strange atmosphere which infected everything, seemed to impregnate the air we breathed, and quenched the gaiety of the men in our train. Wattelot and I were overcome by a kind of religious emotion. We felt as though we were already breathing the air of battle. At about six o'clock we arrived at the station of L, where the train stopped for a few minutes. The platforms were crowded with staff officers, a soldier assured me that the chief headquarters was here. I wanted to question someone and try to get some authoritative information as to what was happening at the front. It seemed to me that I had a right to know, now that I was at the point of becoming one of the actors in the tragedy in progress a few leagues off. But directly I came up to these officers I felt my assurance fail me. They looked disturbed and anxious. There was none of that merry animation that had reigned in the interior, and that I had expected to find everywhere. And then a strange and ridiculous fear came over me, 
the fear of being looked upon as an intruder by these well-informed men who knew everything. I imagined that they would spurn me with scorn, or that I should cause them pain by forcing them to tell me truths people do not like to repeat. It also occurred to me that I was too insignificant a person to confront men in so high of an office, and that I should appear importunate if I disturbed their reflections. But I was now quite sure that the official announcements had not told us all. Without having heard one word, I felt that things were not going so well as we had hoped, as every day in our little town in the West we tried passionately to divine the truth, devouring the few newspapers that reached us. A pang shot through me. I now felt alone and lost amongst these men who seemed strangers to me. Crossing the rails, I got back to our train, drawn up at some distance from the platforms. The sun was on the horizon. In the red sky, two monoplanes passed over our heads at no great height. The noise of their engines made everybody look up. They were flying north, and I felt a desire to rush upwards and overtake one of them and take my seat close to the pilot, behind the propeller, which was spinning round and sending the wind of its giddy speed into his face. I longed to be able to lift myself into the air above the battlefields, and there, suspended in space, try to make out the movements of the clashing nations. I resolved to have a talk with the engine driver of a train returning to Paris empty. He told me in a few words that the French army was retiring rapidly, that it had already recrossed the Belgian frontier, and that at the moment it was fighting on French soil. He told me this simply, and with a touch of sadness in his voice, shaking his head gently. He added no comments of his own, and I did not feel equal to any reply. Full of foreboding, I returned to my train and Wattelot. He had heard what the engine driver had told me, and he said not a word, but looked out into the distance at the fiery sky. We sat down side by side, and said nothing. So we were retreating. Then all our calculations and dreams were shattered. All the fine plans we officers had sketched out together were folly. We were wasting time when, bending over our maps, we foresaw a skilful advance on the hills of Belgium's invaders, followed by a huge victory, dearly bought perhaps, but one that would upset the German colossus at a single blow. The whole thing was an illusion. And I thought what a fool I had been. I thought of my regiment. How much of it was there left? How many of those good fellows were lying dead on foreign soil? How many friends should I never see again? For I imagined things to be worse than they really were. I felt absolutely despondent. What my mind conjured up was no longer a retreat in good order, but a rout. The train had begun to move again. The sun had set, and over the horizon there was but a streak of pale yellow sky lighting up the country. I sat down in the open doorway, with my legs dangling outside, and as I breathed the first few whiffs of fresh air, I felt somewhat relieved. The calm around was such as to make one forget that we were at war. Darkness came on by degrees. Suddenly my heart began to beat faster, and I rose with a nervous movement. What a lot, too, had started up from the straw he had been lying on. We both exclaimed in one breath, Cannon! It was a mere distant growl, hardly audible, 
and yet it was distinct enough to be subdued accompaniment to the thousand noises a train makes as it goes along. We could not distinguish the shots, but gradually the dull sound became louder and seemed to be wafted towards us by a gust of air. Then it seemed to be further off again, and almost to die away, and again to get louder. There is no other earthly sound like it. A thunderstorm as it dies away is the only thing that could suggest the impression we felt. It sends a kind of shiver all over the surface of the body. Even our horses felt it. Their three heads were raised uneasily, their eyes shone in the twilight, and they snorted noisily through their dilated nostrils. Leaning out, I saw the heads of the territorials thrust out of the windows. They, too, had heard the mysterious and stirring music. No one spoke or joked. Their bodies stretching out into space seemed to be asking questions and imploring to know the truth. We came nearer to the sounds of the guns, and could now distinguish the shots following one another at short intervals. The air seemed to be shaken, and we might have thought we were but a few paces off. The train had pulled up sharply in the open country. It was still light enough for us to make out the landscape. Meadows covered with long, pale grass, bordered by willows and tall poplar trees, gently swaying in the evening breeze. In the background, a thick wood shut in the view. The railway line curved away to the right and was lost to view in the growing darkness. Now that the train was motionless, the impressive voice of the cannon could be heard more distinctly. The long, luminous trails of the searchlights passed over the sky at intervals. Impatient at the delay, I got down and walked along the line to the engine. It had stopped at a level crossing. At the side of the closed barrier on the doorstep of her hut, with the light shining upon her, sat the wife of the gatekeeper, a child in her arms. She was a young woman, fair and pale. She seemed somewhat uneasy, and yet had no idea of quitting her post. She was talking in a low voice to the engine driver and stoker of our train. I tried to get some information from her. "'Mon Dieu, monsieur,' she said. "'I know nothing, except that the guns have been firing all day long since yesterday, and even at times during the night. The sound comes chiefly from the direction of G. Some soldiers who went by just now with carts told me the Prussians got into the town yesterday, but that it was to be retaken to-day, and that there were a great many dead and wounded. My hopes revived a little.' I saw at once in my mind the German attack stopped on the River Wies. Our armies recovering, drawing together, and driving the enemy back across the frontier. Our engine driver explained to me that we had come quite close to the terminus, but that we should have to wait some time before we could get in. Other trains had to be unloaded and shunted to make room. I went back to my van. Night had fallen, and it must have been about nine o'clock. The guns had suddenly ceased firing. Our lantern had burnt itself out, and the rest of our wait was made more tedious by the darkness. An empty train passed us, and then silence fell once more upon the spot where we waited anxiously to be allowed to go forwards towards our brothers in arms. Oh, how we longed to join them, even if it were only in the middle of a bloody and difficult retreat. How I longed to be delivered from my solitude. At last... At about eleven o'clock, the train set off again without whistling, and very, very slowly. It went along timidly, so to speak, and as though it were afraid of coming into unknown region, 
which might be full of mysteries and ambuscades. In the distance I saw some signal lamps waved, and suddenly we were stopped. What I then saw astounded me. I had thought we should draw up to a large platform, where gangs of men would be waiting in perfect order to unload the train, sort out the packages, and pile them up in appointed places for the carts to take them quietly away. Instead of this, the train stopped at some little distance from a small station standing by itself in the open country. I could make out some buildings, badly lighted, and around them a crowd of shadowy forms moving about, and drawn up alongside of our train were countless vehicles of all sorts and kinds in indescribable disorder, made all the more confusing by the darkness. Some of them were drawn up in a sort of a line. Others tried to edge themselves in and get a vacant place amongst the entanglement of wheels and horses. The drivers were abusing each other in forcible language. Every now and again there was an outburst of laughter interspersed with oaths. All this time officials were running down from the platform with papers in their hands, trying to read what was chalked on the vans. Inquiries and shouts were heard. "'Where is the bread?' over here no it's not where is the officer in charge matches were struck the few lighted lanterns there were were snatched from one hand by another and in spite of all this apparent disorder the work went rapidly forward men climbed in through the open doors sacks and heavy cases were passed along porters bending under their loads slipped through the maze of vans and carts to the one they wanted and deposited their burdens after giving Wattelot orders to prevent anyone from invading our horse-box, I slipped out and went towards the station office to look for the military commissary. I had great difficulty in making my way through the crowd of men, who seemed to be rushing to take the train by assault in the darkness. Then I had to avoid the breaking of my neck in getting across the maze of rails, the signal wires, and the open ditches. I got to the station. A number of wounded were there lying on the platforms, about a hundred of them, with their clothes torn and covered with dust. They presented a sad picture. They were, it is true, only slightly wounded, but it cuts one to the heart to see soldiers in that plight, hauled out upon the ground, without straw to lie upon, or any doctor to attend to them. However, they had all had first-aid dressings. Below the bandages that bound their heads, their feverish eyes gleamed in the light of the lanterns. Their bandaged arms were supported by pieces of linen tied behind their necks. Several of them were sitting on baskets, casks and packages of all kinds, and they were talking eagerly. Each man was relating, with plenty of gesticulation, the great deeds he had taken part in or seen. As I passed I heard scraps of their conversation. They were in the first line of houses. Then, old chap, our lieutenant rushed forward. You should have seen them scuttle. I was delighted to see that the morale of these fine fellows didn't seem to be the least affected. To hear them, you would have thought the Germans had been driven back at all points. I got a porter to tell me where the military commissary was. He pointed out an artillery lieutenant in a cap with a white band, talking with a group of officers. I introduced myself and asked him if he knew anything about the state of affairs. Like everybody else, he could only give me the very vague information. However, he added, I can confirm what you have heard about G. The first corpse has just retaken the town, which was defended by the Prussian guard. 
It appears that our fellows were wonderful, and that the enemy has suffered enormous losses. However, the lieutenant's voice trembled slightly, and a shrug of his shoulders betrayed his despair. I have orders to evacuate the station, with all my men and my papers. So soon as the last train has been unloaded, I am to fall backwards towards L. How is one to understand what all this means? We looked at each other without a word. Everybody felt dejected and doubtful. Not to understand. To have to obey without understanding why. It was the first time I had really felt the grandeur of military service. You must have a soul stoutly tempered to carry out an order, no matter what, even if that order seems incomprehensible to you. There must have been in that corner of France, on the edge of that frontier which we had sworn never to be violated, there must have been thousands of officers, thousands of soldiers who would have given their lives rather than yield up one inch of ground. Then why abandon that station? Why say so bluntly, Tomorrow you will have no need to go so far north to bring supplies. We shall come nearer to you. We shall withdraw. There I was again, allowing my mind to wander and to suffer. I tried to learn by what means I could get some information about my regiment. Well, it's very simple, said the artillery lieutenant very kindly. Your commissariat officer will certainly have come with this convoy to fetch supplies. Try to get hold of him. He will tell you all about it. I grasped his hand and went off, glad indeed at the thought of seeing my regiment's uniform once more. And Providence seemed to guide me, for I thought I saw the very man I was looking for in the little booking office. But I had some difficulty in recognizing him. He looked aged and worn. His beard had grown quite grey. Bending over the sill of the ticket office, he was in the act of spreading the contents of a box of sardines upon a slice of bread. Yes, it was he. How tired and disheartened he looked. I pushed open the door and rushed in. Bonjour, comment va? Ah, it's you. What have you come here for, my poor fellow? Ah, things aren't looking very rosy. I plied him with questions, and he answered in short, coherent sentences. Shall Roy? Don't talk of it. Our men, grand. A hetacomb. Then the retreat. Day and night. The Germans daren't. Ah, a nice business, isn't it? We're retreating. He told me where the regiment was, in a huge farm a long way off. He said he could take my canteen in one of his vans. As for me, I should have to manage as best I could next day to join my comrades. It would take some time to get my horses detrained, as the only platform was still being used for the vans not yet unloaded. Thanks, I said. Well, it's quite simple. Tomorrow I go straight towards the cannon. Good night. And I went off to finish my sleepless night, lying beside my horses. With my eyes fixed on the chink of the door, I waited hour after hour for the daylight. When dawn broke, I had already got Wattelot and a couple of railway men who were still in the station to bring my horse box up to the platform. The three horses were quickly saddled and ready to start. The freshness of the morning and the joy of feeling firm ground under their feet again made them uncommonly lively. Indeed, Wattelot came near to feeling the effects of their good spirits somewhat uncomfortably as he was getting into the saddle. At last we started at a quick trot along a white, dusty road which led straight across the fields, still bathed in shadow. I went first in the direction my friend had vaguely indicated the night before. Wattelot followed, 
leading my spare horse. The horse's footsteps resounded strangely in this unknown country, where nothing else could be heard. Were we really at war? Everything seemed, on the contrary, to breathe perfect tranquillity. What a change from the feverish bustle of the station the evening before! We rode through a rich and fertile countryside. The fields stretched out one after another without end, covering the rounded flanks of the undulating ground with their stubble, dotted with stacks and golden sheaves. A few hedges and some clumps of trees broke the monotony of the landscape. Here and there, farms of imposing proportions appeared among the foliage. No shots were to be heard, nor any sound of marching troops and this made me uneasy that I began to wonder whether something had not happened during the night to shift the scene of fighting without my knowledge. But I was about to see something which would remind me, better than the noise of cannon, that the scene of strife was not far off. As the daylight became gradually brighter, we distinguished figures moving round some straw stacks, folks who had collected there to pass the night sheltered as much as possible from the cold and the morning dew. I thought they were soldiers who had lost touch with their regiments, and had taken their brief night's rest in the open air. But I soon saw my mistake. As by enchantment, as soon as the first rays of the sun appeared, the sleepers got up, and I saw that they were civilians, mostly women and children. They were the unfortunate country folk who had fled before the barbarian hordes. They had preferred to forsake their homes, to leave them to the invader, rather than fall into their hands. They had fled carrying with them the most precious things they possessed. They had come away not knowing where they would stop, nor where they could pass the night, and as soon as the twilight came and found them exhausted on the interminable roads, they had dropped down by the stacks grateful for a humble bed of straw. There they had stretched their aching limbs, the mothers had carefully made up little beds for their babies, families had nestled closely together, and often whole villages had gathered in the same fields and around the same stacks and when the daylight appeared they had got up hurriedly, and the roads were already crowded with mournful pilgrims seeking refuge further and further inland. I must confess that I had not expected to see such a sight. It made my heart ache. I was seized with a fury, and longed to be able to rush upon the enemy, drive him back across the frontier, and restore the dwellings forsaken by these poor folks. What human being, however cold-hearted, could help feeling deep pity at the sight of these poor, weak, and inoffensive creatures fleeing before invasion. There were pitiable sights on every hand, a mother pushing a perambulator containing several small children, whilst five or six others were hanging on to a dress, or trotting along behind her. Poor invalids, dragged, pushed, carried by all means possible, sooner than be left in the hands of the Prussians. Old men, helped along by boys, infants carried by old men and as they passed they all cast a look of distress at the officer who rode quickly by, averting his eyes. I thought I saw reproach in those glances. They seemed to say to me, Why haven't you been able to defend us? Why have you let them come into our country? See how we are suffering. Look at our little children who cannot walk any further. Where are we to go now that by your fault we have left the homes of our childhood, and of our fathers, and of our fathers' fathers? Is that what war is? I urged my horse to get them out of sight, and to reach the fighting line as quickly as I could. Suddenly the report of a gun sounded straight in front of me. Further off, a few rifle shots were audible, and then guns again, accompanied by concentrated rifle fire. 
A kind of shiver passed through my whole body. My first battle. I was going to take part in my first battle. I felt really mad and intoxicated at the thought of at last realising the dream of my life. But other feelings were mingled with it. I reflected, what effect will it have upon me? I expect I shall come into the middle of the fight when I get over that ridge. Shall I duck my head when I hear the bullets whistling and the shrapnel bursting around me? I am determined to play the man. I know Wattelot is close by, trotting behind me. He mustn't see the least symptom of nervousness in me. The noise of the guns became louder. By the way, I wonder what Wattelot feels like. I turned to look at him, and found his face a bit pale, but directly he saw me glance at his blue north country eyes, his face lit up with a broad smile. Here we are, sir. Yes, Wattelot, here we are. I'm sure you don't know what fear is. Oh, no, sir. That's all right. Forward, then. To the guns. We passed through a hamlet full of wagons and motors. Some orderlies were loading them up with rations and boxes. On one of these I happened to see the number of my own army corps. I'm all right, then, thought I, and turned to an adjutant of the army service corps who was superintending the work. Do you know where the staff of the corps is? I asked. The man shrugged his shoulders to show that he didn't, and he didn't care. What did it matter to him? His job was to get the goods loaded, forget nothing, and then to go to his appointed post, where he would have to wait for further orders to unload his stuff in the evening. He had enough to do. What did anything else matter to him? However, he pointed in a vague manner. They went over there. Off I started again, over the wide undulating plain. The noise of the cannonade became louder and louder, and I now perceived traces of the work of death. At a turning of the road there were a couple of dead horses that had been dragged into a ditch. I cannot say how painful the sight was to me. Apparently a dead horse at the seat of war is a trifle, and no doubt I should very soon see it with indifference. But these were the first I had seen, and I could not help casting a glance of pity at them, poor beasts. A month before they had been showing off their fine points in the well-kept stables of the artillery barracks. When I saw them, their stiffened corpses bore traces of all their sufferings. The harness had rubbed great sores in their flesh in more than one place. Their glazed eyes seemed to be still appealing for pity. They had fallen down exhausted, finding it impossible to keep up with their fellows. They had been quickly unharnessed so as not to block up the road, and had been dragged to the sunburnt grass, and there it was, no doubt, the death agony that had already lasted for some hours had come to an end. We went on, and in the distance, here and there on the plain, which now stretched before us for miles, we saw more of them. I wondered how it was that so many horses had fallen in so short a time. It was not a month since mobilisation had been ordered, and hardly ten days since operations had begun. What a huge effort, then, the army must already have made! But I soon forgot the poor beasts, for we were nearing the scene of the struggle. Behind the shelter of every swell in the ground were ammunition wagons. I went up to one of these and was astonished at what I saw. The limbers, which are always so smart in the barrack-yard, with their grey paint, were covered with a thick coating of dust or hardened mud. The horses, dirty and thin, seemed ready to drop. Their necks were covered with sores, and they were hanging their heads to eat, but seemed not to have the strength enough to take up their food. Drivers and non-commissioned officers were sprawling about, sleeping heavily. 
their cadaverous faces, beards of a week's growth and drawn features showed even in their sleep how exhausted they were. I could hardly recognise the original colour of their dingy uniforms under the accumulation of stains and dust. It was now eight o'clock in the morning. The sunshine was beating hot upon the sleepers, but they seemed indifferent to this. They had simply pulled the peaks of their caps over their eyes and were snoring away with their noses in the air and their mouths open. Beasts and men together formed a group of creatures that seemed utterly depressed and worn out. I could never have believed it possible to sleep under such conditions, with the guns booming unceasingly in all directions. I went up the nearest ridge and thence got a glimpse of a corner of the battle. I had expected to see a sight similar to that which had delighted us at manoeuvres, troops massed in all the depressions of the ground, battalions advancing in good order along the roads, and mounted men galloping about on the higher ground. But there was nothing of the sort. In front of me, about six hundred yards off, and under the cover of the brow of a hill carpeted with russet stubble, I saw two batteries of artillery firing their guns. I looked intently. The pieces were in perfect line with the gunners at their posts. The shots were fired at regular intervals and with cool deliberation. The gunners took their time, and seemed to be working very casually. I had expected to see them fairly excited, the men running under a hail of shells, teams brought up at the gallop as soon as a few salvos had been fired, and the guns whirled off at speed and lined up in battery again some hundreds of yards further off. On the contrary, these guns seemed to be planted there for good. The limbers, which were massed to the rear under cover of a slope, looked very much like the sections of munitions I had seen just before. The men were sleeping in the shadows of their horses, and the horses were asleep on their feet in their appointed places. The only man standing was a stout-looking adjutant who was walking up and down with his hands in his pockets. With his eyes on the ground he seemed to be counting his steps. And meanwhile the two batteries went on firing salvos of four at a time. When one was finished there was a pause of two or three minutes, and then the other battery took it up. But what a lot interrupted my reverie. Look over there, sir, Sabad. I looked in the direction he was pointing out, and now I no longer felt the uneasy feeling that had come over me at the sight of what was going on here. Above a height that overtopped the hill on which I was, about 1,500 yards away, the German shells were bursting incessantly. We could distinctly hear the sharp sound of the explosions. In the clear blue of the sky, they made little white puffs which vanished gradually and were replaced by others. Their gunners could not have been firing with the same coolness as ours, for the white puffs increased in number. The noise they were making on the spot must have been deafening. From where I was we heard the explosions following one upon another without intermission. But what was most thrilling was to watch one of our own batteries in action under this avalanche of projectiles. The slope on which it was placed was in shadow still. Against this blue-grey background, short flames could be seen flashing for a second at the muzzles of the guns, and the four reports reached us almost at the same moment. The gunners could be seen just as calm under fire as others here. The German shells that tried to scatter death among them burst too high. They were trying to annihilate this battery, which was no doubt causing terrible ravages among their men. But the broken fragments fell wide, and our gunners worked their pieces gallantly. This was something that more than made up for my touch of disappointment at first. My hope revived, and I started off at a trot straight in front of me, getting past the ridge under the cover of which the pair of batteries were plying their guns. 
No sooner had I gained the further slope than I understood that what I had seen hitherto was only the background of the battle. From this spot a violent rifle fire was heard in every direction. In the meadows there were a large number of infantry sections crouching behind every available bit of cover. On the opposite slope long lines of skirmishers were deployed, and dotted about everywhere, above their heads, rose puffs of smoke, white, black and yellow, the German shells bursting. The noise of them was incessant, and the spot where we were seemed to me very quiet, in spite of the firing of the two batteries close behind us. Everything was wonderfully coloured by the sunshine. The red trousers of the soldiers lying in the grass showed up brightly. The mess-tins on their knapsacks, and the smallest metal objects, buttons, bayonet hilts, bedel buckles, glittered at every moment. On my left, in a dip of the ground with a little river running down it, a gay little village seemed to be overflowing with troops. I rode towards it in haste, hoping to find a staff there which could give me some information. The streets were, in fact, full of infantry, lying about or sitting along the houses on both sides. In the middle of the main road was a crowd of galloping orderlies, cyclists and motorcyclists. I felt rather bewildered in all this bustle. However, these people seemed to know where they were going. They were no doubt carrying orders or information, and yet I could see no chief officer who appeared to be busying himself about the action or directing anything. Those who were not sleeping were chatting in little groups. The soldiers of different arms were all mixed together, which had, perhaps, a picturesque effect, but was disconcerting. Suddenly I heard someone call my name. I turned round and hesitated a moment before I recognised in an artillery captain with a red beard a former friend who had been a lieutenant in the horse battery at Looneville. Yes, it was he. I recognised him by his grey eyes, his hooked nose and his ringing voice. Eh, hey, mon cher, what are you doing here? You look fresh and fit. What are you looking for? You seem to be at sea. I explained my position to him and asked him to tell me what had happened. Oh, that would take too long. Your fellows were at Charleroi with us. They had some experiences. But hang it if I know what they were doing with us. We beat them yesterday, my friend. Our men and our guns did wonders. And now there's talk of our retreating further south. I don't understand it all. Ah, we have seen some hot work, and you will be making a rough beginning. Looking for your regiment, are you? I haven't seen it yet today. But you will see that staff right over there behind those stacks. Yes, where the shells are bursting. That's General T. He can help you, only, you see, he's not exactly in clover. T has been splendid, always under fire, cheering on his men. They say he wants to get killed so as to not see the retreat. I knew General T well. He commanded a brigade in our garrison town of R. And a kindly chief he was, clear-minded, frank, and plain-spoken. I soon made up my mind to go see him, and see what help I could get to enable me to rejoin my regiment. It would be a pleasure, too, to see him again. I measured the distance with my eye, a kilometre, perhaps. There was no road, and to go across the fields would not be very easy, as there were walls and hedges round the meadows. I took the other way out of the village, and just as Wattelot and I were leaving it, we saw some wounded men arriving. They came slowly, helped along by their comrades and there were such a number of them that they blocked the road. Those faces tied up with bandages, clotted with perspiration, dust and blood, those coats hanging open, those shirts torn, and showing lint and bandages reddened with blood. 
those poor bandaged feet that had to be kept off the ground. All this made a painful impression on me. No doubt this was because I was not accustomed to such sights, for others hardly took any notice of it. "'The ambulance! Where is the ambulance?' cried the men who were helping them along. "'At the station,' answered some soldiers, hardly looking round. "'Go straight on and turn left when you get to the market-place.' and the sad procession went its way. I jumped the ditch at the side of the road and struck across the fields, spurring straight for General T. At that moment the rifle fire became more violent. Some forward movement was certainly beginning, for the infantry sections that were lying in cover at the bottom of the valley began to climb up the slope of the ridge on which I was galloping. Suddenly my horse swerved sharply. It had just almost trodden upon a body lying on the other side of a low wall of loose stones that I had just jumped. I drew rein. A sob burst from my lips. Oh, I did not expect to see that so suddenly. A score of corpses lay scattered on that sloping stubble field. They were zouaves, and they seemed almost to have been placed there deliberately, for the bodies were lying at about an equal distance from one another. They must have fallen there the day before during an attack and night had come before it was possible to bury them. The rifles were still by their side, with the bayonets fixed. The one nearest to us was lying with his face to the ground, and was still grasping his weapon. He was a handsome fellow, thin and dark. No wound was visible, but his face was strikingly pale under the red chechia, which he had pulled down over his ears. I looked at Waterlot. The good fellow's eyes were filled with tears. Come, thought I. We must not give way like this. What a lot, my friend, we shall see plenty more. You know they were brave fellows who have been killed doing their duty. We must not pity them. What a lot did not answer. I galloped off again towards the big rick by which stood General T's staff. I had already forgotten what I had seen, and my attention was fixed upon that small group of men standing motionless near the top of the ridge. German shells kept bursting over them from time to time. We were now about a hundred yards off, so I left Watlot and my spare horse hidden behind a shattered hovel, and went alone towards the rick. But just as I was coming up to it, I heard a curious hissing noise, which lasted for about a twentieth part of a second, and above my head, how high I could not tell, vram, vram, two shells exploded with a tremendous noise. I ducked my head instinctively, and tried to make myself as small as possible on my horse. A thought passed through my mind like a flash. Here we are. Why on earth did I come up here? My campaign will have been a short one. And then this other thought followed. But I'm not hit. That's all their shells can do. I shan't trouble to duck in future. And yet I was disagreeably impressed. A soldier who had been holding a horse just before, about thirty yards from me, ran down the slope, whilst the horse was struck dead and lay in a pool of blood his body torn open. But I was now close to the officers composing the staff of the T Brigade. They came towards me, supposing, probably, that I was bringing some information or an order. One of them was known to me, an infantry captain, who had been in garrison at R with me. We shook hands, and I explained the object of this unusual visit. He replied, "'Your regiment? You will find it to the left of the army corps.' It's the regiment that ensures our liaison with the corps. Well, Captain, it seems our troops are advancing. Things are going well. He shrugged his shoulders sharply. 
His eyes were hard and sombre as he gazed fixedly at the horizon in the direction of the enemy, and then said in an exasperated tone, "'Certainly they are advancing. See those lines of skirmishers working along there to the right of the village? And those others further off, there, where you see those puffs of yellow smoke? But that won't prevent us from beginning our retreating movement at noon. There are express orders. We must move together with the whole army.' We shall sleep tonight twenty kilometres from here, and not in the right direction. We looked at one another in silence. I didn't like to ask any further questions, nor to express my disappointment and the angry feeling that was becoming stronger in me. The sight of General T calmed me at once. It seemed to tell me what my duty was, and to impose silent obedience and firm faith in our chiefs. Standing alone, one hundred yards in advance of his officers, whom he had told to remain concealed behind the enormous stack, the general was observing the struggle. He stood perfectly still, and with his back slightly bent and his hands behind him. He had allowed his beard to grow, and it formed a white patch on his slightly tanned face. In front of him, at some little distance, two shells had just burst, falling short. The general had not stirred. He looked like a statue of sadness and of duty. I had thought of going and introducing myself, but now I felt I was too insignificant a being to intrude myself upon a chief who was watching the advance of his brave soldiers as a father watches over his children. I turned and I went away, quietly and slowly, with a feeling of oppression. So I made my way back again, skirting the firing line behind the ridge, often obliged to pull up to allow troops to pass to reinforce the line. Now and then it seemed that the fighting had ceased at the spot I happened to be in, but I soon found myself again in the thick of the artillery and rifle fire. On all the roads I crossed, there was a continual stream of wounded men limping along, and stretcher-bearers, carrying mutilated bodies. The heat had become tropical. It was nearly twelve o'clock. My head began to swim. My shako seemed gradually to get tighter, and to press on my temples till they were ready to burst. I thought I should never find my regiment. Never. I came to a small village, and decided to stop and get some food for ourselves and for my horses, as they showed signs of distress. There, too, the streets were full of infantry, but, to my astonishment, none of them belonged to any of the regiments of my corps. So I supposed I had passed its left wing without knowing it. Bad luck. I rode up the steep alleys, looking for some inn where I could put up, but all the inns were filled with hot, foot-sore soldiers, who seemed thankful for a moment's rest. They were sitting about wherever there was any shade to be found, with their coats unbuttoned, their neckties undone, and shirts open. They were trying to recover their vigour by greedily devouring hunks of bread they had in their wallets, spread with the contents of their preserved meat-tins. At the door of the vicarage, near the pretty little church which could be seen from the surrounding country, I saw an old priest who was distributing bottles of white wine to an eager crowd of troopers. I heard him say in a gentle voice, Here, my lads, take what there is. If the Prussians come, I don't want them to find a drop left. Mercy, mercy, Monsieur Lequeur. All at once there was a frightful explosion quite close to us, which made the whole church square quiver. A German coal-box had fallen onto the roof of the church, making an enormous hole in it, out of which came a thick cloud of horrible yellow smoke. A shower of wreckage fell all around us and made a curious noise. The windows of all the houses came clattering down in shivers. 
In a twinkling the little square in front of the vicarage was empty. A few men who were wounded fled moaning. The rest slung their rifles and went off quickly in a line close under the shelter of the houses. I was left alone, face to face, with the white-haired priest, who still held a bottle of golden wine in his hands. We looked at each other, greatly distressed. Tenez, monsieur le officer, he said suddenly. Take some more of this. I'm going to break all the remaining bottles, so that they shall not drink any of it. Ah, the savages! Ah, those wretches! My church! My poor church! And he went across his little garden quickly, without listening to my thanks. I handed the bottle to Wattelot, who stuffed it into his wallet with a smile of satisfaction. But a second coal-box soon followed the first. It was certainly not the place to stay in, so I decided to be off and postpone my luncheon until I could find a rather more sheltered dining-room. As I left the village I saw one of our batteries moving briskly away. It was the one that had been in action close to the village, and had probably been the target of the German gunners. It went rapidly down the slope, the drivers brandished their whips and brought them down upon their haunches of their jaded animals. They had to make their haste, for the position had become untenable. The German guns were concentrating their fire on the hapless village and the neighbouring ridge. The formidable shells burst in threes, the ground shook, it was evident that very soon nothing would be left there but ruins. I resumed my wanderings. I saw then that what the captain had told me was true. The retreating movement was beginning to be obvious. Whilst the firing grew more intense along the whole line, small parties of infantry marched across the fields in an opposite direction to the one they had taken two hours previously. So we were beating a retreat. However, I had seen it with my own eyes. Not only had we held our ground along the whole line, but at several points our soldiers were making headway. And then suddenly, and without any apparent reason, we had to withdraw. It was enough to make one mad. We had to retreat over the soil of our France and give it up, little by little, to the hordes which followed on our heels. I had slackened rein, and was allowing my horse to go as he liked over the country strewn with troops. He seemed to understand what was happening, and with his head lowered, as though he did it reluctantly, he slowly followed the direction the immense army was taking. I was seized with a deep feeling of hopelessness. I doubted everything. Our men, of whose bravery and tenacity I had seen proof, and our leaders, whose courage I knew. My head seemed to be on fire. But I heard a ringing voice behind me, calling me by my name. I turned, and my sadness gave way to joy as I recognised two light blue tunics with red collars. I had found the uniform of my regiment and my hope revived. I felt I was no longer alone, and that we might yet accomplish great things. In front of a score of our chasseurs rode two good friends of mine, Lieutenant B. and Lieutenant of Reserve de C. What a pleasure it was to shake their hands, and to see their bronzed faces and dusty garments. We went on together, chatting merrily. C. knew the village where the regiment was to be billeted. We went straight for it at a trot. It was there, at that nightfall, that I was going to find my chiefs again, my comrades and my men, and I should at last take my part in the fighting. I could not know what the days to follow had in store for me, but I did know that none of them would be so cruel for me as the day when I went to the front. I was now in the bosom of my military family, and I looked forward to taking my share of danger at the head of the brave chasseurs I knew so well. Doubtless I should now know where we were going why we had to advance, and why to retire. It seems that moral suffering is less keen when it can be shared with others. 
I shall never suffer again what I suffered that day. End of chapter 1 Recording by FNH Visit www.bookranger.co.uk